the beginnings of the dietary guidelines, those really grew out of World War II. And again, the government asked the question, what's the minimum amount of food we've got to be able to ship to Europe or the Pacific for the soldiers? And so it always grew out of this minimum number. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Dr. Emily Kybert here. We are joined by Dr. Donald Lehman, recognized internationally for his research in protein and amino acid metabolism and his work with skeletal muscle related to fitness, obesity, diabetes, and cardiometabolic health. Dr. Lehman was a professor at the University of Illinois from 1977 to 2012 and now works as a nutrition consultant. He has served on the editorial boards of the Journal of Nutrition, and the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior. Dr. Lehman earned two degrees in biochemistry from Illinois State University and his doctorate in human nutrition from the University of Minnesota. In this episode, we dive deep into why it matters when and how often we consume protein and just how it relates to exercise and why protein matters more than just building muscles and how is it crucial for immunity vasodilation, blood pressure, and so much more. In this episode, we are also joined by my dear friend, Dr. Gabrielle Lyon, a functional medicine doc in New York City to help break down the nutrition science with Dr. Donald Lehman. Dr. Donald Lehman, this is a huge privilege to have you on as one of our first guests for Muscle Medicine Podcast. Don and I have been friends for how many years is it? Wow, that's a great question. <laughs> Must be close to 25 oh, or something. Oh my God, I'm not that old. <laughs> Maybe 30. Not, that's not possible. <laughs> anyway, you are one of my very, very, very best friends, mentor. You trained me in undergrad and I trained in human nutrition, vitamin mineral metabolism at the University of Illinois with you. And you just happen to be one of the world-leading experts in protein metabolism. <laughs> well, thank you. <laughs> Emily and I are so excited to have you on because protein and muscle are arguably the most important topics when individuals talk about health. You know, we think about obesity and everyone focuses on obesity, but really what I've learned from you is that it's not really about being over fat. The issue is about being under-muscled. And with that being said, protein has gotten a really bad rap right? The, this whole dietary protein. And it's amazing because you have a very unique perspective. And, and I thought before we get into the details of protein metabolism and things like that, I, I think getting a little bit of the history of how we've determined how much protein we should have in addition to kind of the agenda of the RDA and, and where all of that came from. Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a long history and one I've been involved in for quite a while. I think one of the confusing things about protein is that you can be relatively healthy at a lot of different protein intakes. And back 100 years ago, when people were much more active and everybody had physical labor all day long, you could get along on relatively little protein because it's all about keeping your muscle healthy, like you said earlier. And now we're realizing that in more stressful modern societies where exercise, you kind of have to work at getting, 
and we're living longer too. It, protein becomes a lot more important. Sort of the history of it, interestingly, most of nutrition actually grew out of animal science. And we really discovered it trying to make agriculture more efficient. And we use things like nitrogen balance and growth. And, and in agriculture, you're really only focused on young animals because it's really during the growth period. And so almost all of our studies of protein and nitrogen balance came out of how to grow animals efficiently and only up to really early adulthood. What we really never studied was much about adults and what's really been changing in the last, you know, 10, 15 years is we've realized what we thought we knew about growth and children just doesn't hold up very well for adults. And so that, in a nutshell, is kind of the old techniques are okay for growth, but really not very good for adults. Was there an agenda, you know, when everyone came together, these committees that determined how much carbohydrates and how much fat individuals should have? and protein, who were these people that made these decisions? <laughs> well, there's there's a lot of different committees over the years. One of the ones that's had a big influence on the protein decisions early was the World Health Organization. And you think about the agenda of the World Health Organization, they really are focused on the poorest countries in the world. So they're really looking at the minimum amount of protein to allow children not to get protein calorie malnutrition, quashiorcor, marasmus, or some of those diseases. And so they're really looking at an absolute minimum need to try to get public health. When we got into sort of the beginnings of the dietary guidelines, those really grew out of World War II. And again, the government asked the question, what's the minimum amount of food we've got to be able to ship to Europe or the Pacific for the soldiers? And so it always grew out of this minimum number. And then when we got into the more modern dietary guidelines, one of the things that's been sort of the backdrop of this has been the American Heart Association. And they've always had this fundamental belief that cholesterol and saturated fat were the absolute causes of heart disease. And so they went to great lengths to be sure that anything that had saturated fat or cholesterol in it would be restricted. And so animal protein sort of fell by the wayside because that's where we get cholesterol. You know, and it seems as if what's emerging now is this argument about sustainability and that we shouldn't be eating nearly as much dietary protein as we are because we're affecting the environment in a negative way. And, and you and I have had these conversations, and I would love for you to share with our listeners more of the science and the data behind these kinds of arguments because protein is such an emotional topic that it really skews the science. Yeah. It's been interesting that animal agriculture has sort of been under attack literally for my entire professional career. Originally, it was animal welfare because they thought animals were mistreated, and that turned out to be not true. And then it was animal rights. You know, they should have the same rights as people somehow. And that really didn't work out very well. So then it became cholesterol and saturated fat, Turns out cholesterol really doesn't matter, and saturated fat's really only an issue if you're overeating carbohydrates. And so now they finally turn to sustainability, that somehow animals produce too much CO2 or methane or, or whatever. And the problem with all of that is that animals produce about one-third of the world's protein, and cattle, particularly dairy and beef, 
live predominantly on biomass that humans can't eat. So basically, they can take grasses and forage and waste products from like milling of grains and things. They can consume it and turn it into very high quality food and, and specifically high quality protein. There's no other animal and no other plant that can do that. So we kind of get into this argument about plants versus animals, but that's not really the argument. The argument is best using the land mass of the world. And two thirds of the land mass is only suitable for ruminant animals, cattle, sheep, and goats. And so we really don't want to ignore them as an important food source and an important issue for producing protein. So what you're saying is there's parts of the world that are designated really or available only for feeding ruminants and animals. Yeah. If you look at the United States, basically Texas, Oklahoma, Wyoming, North and South Dakota, Idaho, all of those states are heavily into dairy or beef production. And you can't raise avocados or broccoli there. I mean, it's, it's grasslands. And a lot of the, even the forages like a wheat land in Nebraska end up having cattle after the wheat's been harvested. So it's sort of a better use of the land and there's no other use for it. I mean, you can't you can't raise apples or broccoli there. So you either can use it as grassland or put it idle. And putting it idle doesn't help anything. So essentially, the sustainability argument where eating high dietary protein really affects the environment in a negative fashion sounds as if it's incorrect. Yeah. I mean, there's people out there who've tried to claim that cattle in particular produce 30% of the greenhouse gas on the face of the earth. And, and that's really ridiculous. I mean, the leading two causes of greenhouse gas in the United States are electricity and cars. And if you think about cattle, back in 1800, we had about 80 million cattle in the United States. They were called buffalo at that time. Now we've got about 90 million. But in 1800, we had zero cars, and now we've got over 300 million cars in the United States. So it's kind of like, what do you think really caused greenhouse gas? <laughs> we've got the same number of cattle, but we've got 300 million cars roaming around. I mean, it's just, it's totally misrepresenting the facts. You know, it sounds as if that really highlights a next kind of very important point is this emotional aspect of protein. It's really the fact that it's this food source with a face that has really skewed people's perspectives in terms of consuming dietary protein. You've done decades of research, even though you're only 25, <laughs> decades. Thank you. <laughs> and some of the early human studies, and we've spoken about this, is what did you find when you increased the dietary protein with these patients? What were the metabolic changes that they had and what were the amounts of proteins that you were using to actually create these body changes, body composition changes, triglyceride changes, and, and biomarkers? So we've done quite a few different kinds of studies, both with animal models, so really basic research, and also human studies. So I think you're referring to some of the work we did with weight loss and obesity and diabetes and metabolic syndrome. Yes, because I had to collect yeah. them. We won't even talk about what that was. Yeah. Yes. You had to collect a lot. Yeah. <laughs> what, did you, yeah. what did you have to collect? The, the human samples are uh, not necessarily fun 
<laughs> Gross. <laughs> fun to uh, collect. So one of the things that is out there that I think is a huge mistake in nutrition medicine is we have a focus on the pathology of the disease. So when we study heart disease, you know, we study the heart. When we study obesity, we study fat tissue. When we study diabetes, we tend to study the pancreas. In my mind, those are all the negative outcomes of the problem. So when you have too many calories, too many carbohydrates, you become fat and your your fat tissue goes up. My feeling is if you're committed to staying fat, then by all means, you should study the pathology of adipose tissue. But if you really want to conquer obesity, then you need to look for the active tissue, and that's muscle. And so I really got started thinking about how do you make muscle healthy? And one of the things we realized is that as you get beyond your early growth period, somewhere beyond 25 years of age, the muscle shifts toward a different metabolism for protein turnover. And protein turnover, we always think of muscle and exercise, but protein turnover ends up using about 50% of the calories burned by muscle. And so what we wanted to do was look at how to make protein turnover more effective in muscle. And so we started experimenting with different diets and things, and we realized that certain protein and certain amino acids would stimulate protein synthesis in muscle. So with all of that, we sort of developed a diet, and our diet was reduced carbohydrates and higher protein. So what levels did we use? Our protein target was really not really a target of amount per day as much as it was an amount per meal. So we discovered that it takes about 30 grams of protein at a meal to effectively stimulate protein synthesis. So you figure three meals per day, and eat around 90, somewhere. And so we always targeted around 100 to 120 grams of protein. We were mostly working with uh, women at that point, 100 to 120 grams of protein. And then the other thing we were targeting was carbohydrates. The body's need for carbohydrate is only around 90 grams per day. Most Americans are eating over 300. And what we were able to see from our literature and from our research was that when you get carbohydrates below about 140 grams per day, you get a lot of metabolic changes. You reduce your triglycerides, you increase your HDLs, you basically correct your blood lipids, stabilize your insulin. And so with a diet that had around 120 grams of protein and around 120 grams of carbohydrate, we were able to create very effective weight loss diets and correct a lot of the basic symptoms of metabolic syndrome, the triglycerides, the high blood sugar, insulin, etc. And that protein recommendation is, would you say, more than what the average American is getting a day? So... It's a little bit more. The average American male is eating around 90 grams, and the average American female is eating a little below 70. So, you know, 120 is a fairly substantial increase. It goes up to about 1.5 grams per kg. So, you know, it's sort of a 50% increase for the average female, not quite that much for an average male. So if people are starting to eat that amount of protein per day, which is more than 
I would say what the typical American is eating, what, what are they going to start to experience or feel in their body? There's two things going on with the diet that I just described. You're lowering your carbohydrates per day and you're re- increasing the protein. On the carbohydrate standpoint, usually when people lower their carbohydrate, they're going to go through around day three, four, five, they're going to feel kind of lethargic, kind of tired and run down. But then they get through that. The body's sort of readjusting how it handles blood sugar. And out at about day seven, then they feel like they have great energy. They don't get the afternoon lulls and things like that. As far as the protein, again, depending on where they're starting, if they're a female who's only eating maybe 55 grams per day, and they all of a sudden jump up to 120 the next day, chances are they're going to get some GI discomfort. They may feel constipation. Protein is what we call hydroscopic. It it draws water to it. And so one of the things we always tell people is that if your protein's real low, you might want to ease into a higher intake over three, four, five days. And also you need to drink a lot of water so that you don't get that sort of feeling of constipation or whatever. So I would say those are the two most significant early things they feel. No, it's really interesting. There's been a huge interest in intermittent fasting, and there's some longevity researchers out there in California, and they've really pushed this intermittent fasting. And it's really Uh interesting. I love your perspective on what that does to the muscle and really some of the data that has come out of that research and if it really is applicable to humans. Yeah, the term intermittent fasting is something you really have to define. I've seen a lot of different definitions. Some people consider it like fasting one or two days a week. Some people see it as skipping one meal or maybe only have two meals or or they'll skip one and group two together or something. So in general, the data for intermittent fasting has been pretty positive. When we're trying to deal with weight control, it always boils down to controlling calories. And some people find that if they just simply skip a meal, they're not that hungry, and they end up having a lower net calories per the day. I, I mean, most Americans that are overweight are overweight because they snack. They eat probably too large a portions, but then they eat in between meals. So I like the idea of controlling meals. I'm okay with intermittent fasting. Some people sort of look at fasting kind of as a cleanse, and I'm a little more skeptical about that. We know that when you get to adults, like a 40-year-old adult, if they go into a fast or bed rest, they'll lose muscle mass pretty quickly. And the older you get, the slower you get that back. So I'm not a big fan of sort of fasting where you'd actually skip meals or not eat for 48 hours or something. I'm not a big fan of that. But the idea of two meals a day or intermittent fasting type of things, I think the data is pretty positive. So what about the effects on skeletal muscle? You know, Walter Longo's lab, they've really talk a lot about their prolonged diet, their five-day fasting mimicking diet. And doing my fellowship in geriatrics at WashU, thanks to you, (laughs) really made me concerned about maintaining skeletal muscle as we age, because as we know, muscle is the largest organ in the body and it is 
the largest endocrine organ responsible for really all health outcomes as individuals age. Are you familiar with the work of Walter Longo? And if yes, how do you think that that impacts individuals over the age of 65 fasting in regards to those kind of protocols? I'm not specifically familiar with his five-day fast or diet or whatever, so I can't really comment on that. I'm pretty familiar with a lot of the basic research they've done and his philosophies. I've read a lot of those. In general, they're a group that sort of believes in dietary restriction for longevity. Unfortunately, most of their research has come from kind of odd groups. A lot of it's come from animal studies. And the problem to differentiate here is we know that overeating and obesity are a negative to health. And so when you talk about animal studies, they do a lot of animal studies where they restrict the diet by, say, 40%. Well, animals left to just what we call ad libitum eating, eating anytime they want, will overeat by about 40%. So basically what they're doing is restricting the animal back to normal weight, and they tend to be healthier. So I think that makes perfect sense. The idea that they also live longer, you have to also remember that a lot of these experiments are done in sterile environments, and people don't live in sterile environments. We know that Having healthy muscle mass and the larger your muscle mass makes you more stable to handle stresses we encounter. If you encounter a, an accident or a surgery or, heaven forbid, something like cancer, your survivability is directly related to the muscle mass when you have it. And clearly, people who follow restrictive diets or vegetarian diets tend to have less muscle mass. So that could end up being very detrimental as they age, especially if they encounter some kind of health crisis. Yeah, I think that, you know, to make wholesale recommendations that everybody would be healthier, vegetarian, that just doesn't hold up. I mean, you can create vegetarian lifestyles. I mean, you can look at the seven-day Adventists who are basically vegetarian, but they have very low-stress lives. They never drink alcohol. They never smoke. They walk everywhere. I mean, they've created an entire lifestyle. It's hard to say that being low protein is part of it. That may, you know, you don't know what part of it made it healthy. You can take the country of India, for example. They are predominantly vegetarians, and they have the second highest rate of diabetes in the world. They're what we call skinny fat. They have low muscle mass, high body fat. Over 55% of the population has metabolic syndrome, and yet they never eat meat. So it's sort of like, you know, if, if you want to look, you can find a case to support your, your theory, but you can also find a case to make your theory look really bad. You know, on the health front, when we talk about dietary protein, there's a lot of stuff in the media. And really the big hype now is protein and cancer. Yeah. Because of mTOR. Right. And I'd love for you to clarify those concepts and, and maybe give a little bit about a background in terms of mTOR stimulation and cancer and, and is protein really safe? The origins of all of that is that they've done epidemiology studies. And if you look broadly enough, you'll find some cancers like colon cancer that tend to be somewhat more prevalent in societies where people eat meat. 
But if you start fractionating that away, what you find is those same groups don't have nearly as much fiber, they're under more stress, it kind of goes on and on. So, you know, narrowing it down to to protein is kind of a, a weird thing. Then as you mentioned, the longevity studies, people have, have recognized that mTOR is a protein complex that really triggers protein synthesis. And it's an important trigger in muscle. It's a primary regulator in muscle, but it's also a regulator in cancer cells. It's just simply a, it's a regulator of growth, of protein turnover. And so what people have begun to confuse is they've done these animal studies where they do longevity studies again. And if they inhibit mTOR or restrict protein, what they find is the animals live longer and cancers don't develop as much. But what they're ignoring is that protein is a stimulation for mTOR, but so is carbohydrate and insulin. And in all of these studies, in muscle, the primary stimulation is protein, but in liver and cancer cells and other cells, the primary stimulation is insulin. And so what people are confusing is whether these energy restriction diets, these longevity diets, are they really restricting protein or are they just restricting calories? And I think that's a major complication in trying to interpret those. One of the things that we know about the importance of protein and muscle is you don't want to graze on it all day. What you want to do is eat it as meals. And so what you get with a meal of protein is you get about a two-hour stimulation, improves muscle protein synthesis, and then it turns back off. And it's off until the next meal, and you get a two-hour. Where in these animal studies, what they're doing is chronically feeding the animals. The animals are absorptive 24 hours a day, and their mTOR is turned on 24 hours a day. And I don't think anybody thinks that's a healthy condition, but it's totally unique to the animals. And that's not the way we recommend eating protein. I'm going to have to start changing the way I eat my protein. I know. I've been, I've been watching her. She's grazing on protein. I'm like, Emily. Yeah, that's not a good approach for muscle. Uh, the idea of taking in lots of small doses of it is probably the worst of all worlds. You need it in significant doses, around 30 grams at a time. You need to eat it in a 15 to 30 minute period because you want your blood levels to spike. That's what triggers mTOR. And then you want the blood to clear it back out so it goes back to the, to the baseline condition. So when people are grazing, what's happening? So what you're now trying to do is sort of the experiment these guys have run where you chronically have it stimulated. And I, you know, I think that's the worst eating pattern. It would be subthreshold if they're grazing. Yeah, but it's probably always somewhat active. And it, the issue here is it's subthreshold in muscle, but it's going to turn it on in cancer cells or liver or other because you're eating food. You're going to have a constant insulin effect. So essentially, eat your protein in meal-based amounts. Exactly. So whether you pick your alternate day fasting or whether, you know, your fasting approach, if you have two meals a day or three meals a day, or even if you're an athlete and want four meals a day, it's far better to do it in meals where each meal delivers 30 or 40 grams of protein. So do you recommend snacking? Or if someone is really hungry? I never recommend snacking. Suck it up. Just be hungry. Yeah. I think snacking, A, leads to obesity for most people. And if you're going to do it, then 
the one time that I think there's clear benefit is right after exercise. Hmm. But people who snack at 9.30 at night, it's pretty hard to justify that. <laughs> or even, you know, 10.30 in the morning, it's really hard to justify a reason for that other than just extra calories. So you've spoken why protein is so important for building healthy muscle. Can you speak to why protein is also important in terms of how someone is exercising and supporting the muscle in that way? Yeah, so we always think about protein and building muscle, but actually that's a really small part of the picture. If you look at muscle and the concept of protein turnover, we're constantly synthesizing new and breaking down old. We need to build about 70 grams of new protein every day. If you look at growth, say take a 16-year-old guy who's growing pretty rapidly, they only are putting down maybe four or five grams of new protein per day, but they have to replace 70 grams, just called protein turnover, and that's really repair and replacement. So the, the issue of protein isn't for building protein as much as it is for the repair and remodeling that constantly goes on. One of the cool things I think it's important for people to understand is that the proteins in our muscle turn over. We replace all of them about every 30 days. And so in the course of a year, you're going to replace your entire body protein at least six times. That's a pretty crazy idea. And that's why we have to have this constant supply of protein. It's not about growth. It's not about building. It's about the need for constantly repairing and replacing. And would inflammatory conditions actually affect the ability for the body to resynthesize proteins? Inflammatory conditions, all kinds of conditions do it. Bed rest, aging, our efficiency of this turnover process is subject to a lot of things. And so as we get older or as we're under stress or inflammation, the diet needs to become more precise. Our, our need for daily exercise, our need for daily protein actually becomes, as I said, more precise. We need to get it right more when we're 55 or 60 than when we're 16 or 25. It becomes more and more difficult to get it right. So when you speak about exercise, what kind of exercise are you speaking about exactly? And then how would you feed before and after that exercise? The exercise that has been most studied is clearly resistance exercise. We need, we need the muscles to stretch with resistance. So it's not aerobic. It's not sort of going out for a walk around the block. It's actually doing some kind of resistance. And that could be you know, going to the gym and lifting weights, or it could be isometrics or yoga at home. But we need that sort of stretch against resistance to kind of trigger muscle to build new protein. And so that's the core of the exercise. The majority of the research demonstrates benefit after exercise. And taking in protein to help repair muscle after exercise. And most of the research has been done with Younger individuals getting about 15 grams of protein within the first hour or so after exercise. Older adults need probably 20 to 25. And this will sort of act like a meal, but after exercise, you don't need as much. You can use smaller amounts because the muscle now has been sensitized. It's more efficient. 
You can also use carbohydrate. If you're doing an activity where you're going to have to come back and do it right away again, say the next day, if you're a if you're a distance runner and you want to feel good the next day, most people will, will take a combination of protein and carbohydrates. If you're just looking for fitness, you really can get along just taking the protein. As far as before exercise, I think this is really more of an individual thing. You'll, you'll hear trainers talk about taking protein before exercise. That's really only based on a single study in the literature. We did a number of studies with looking at protein before exercise and never saw an effect. I'm not a fan. I think it digests slowly. If you're going to take protein before exercise, in my mind, it should be at least two hours before it, so it has the time to digest. Some people like eating some carbohydrates before exercise, just for the energy effect. Again, there's been quite a lot of research on that. If you're going to do it, it needs to be a very low glycemic type, so you don't get a big insulin spike. So anyway, I think before exercise, the primary thing is fluid is water. And then you're just sort of kind of individual relative to the kind of exercise and how you feel. So you know that you've opened yourself up to two burning questions. Uh-huh. Number one, what other supplements could be beneficial for training from a science-based perspective? And number two, we've talked about protein and muscle, talked about protein and metabolism. What other effects does protein have in the body? So you've got two major questions. Yeah. Protein from a meal standpoint has been investigated for changing the body composition. So that's kind of what we've been talking about, protecting muscle so you can lose fat and still protect muscle. When you're doing that, people have shown that protein has significant effects on satiety. It seems to trigger quite a few different hormones uh, from the gut, GLP-1 and PYY, CCK. All of these are hormones that have incretin function, so they stimulate satiety in the in the brain. So you definitely get satiety effects with protein, and more so early in the day. One of the things we should mention is if you look at American diets, Americans tend to eat a lot of protein late in the day and very little early in the day, but all of the muscle research has been done with looking at protein at the first meal. I'll avoid using the word breakfast because people think that means you have to eat whatever, bacon and eggs at seven in the morning. First meal of the day means it could be 11 in the morning, but whatever your first meal is needs to be high protein. And that's very different for most Americans. The other one is protein stimulates protein synthesis, and that is a very high energy demand. We call it thermogenesis. So protein actually stimulates calorie burning all by itself, which is really pretty cool. Okay. It is also cool. So basically, everyone should shift their thinking to a higher protein diet and have the realization that that actually is a optimal protein diet. Exactly. I mean, the dietary guidelines are always focused on the minimum protein. And so they're they're basically always talking about people reducing their protein diet. As I start out talking about protein intake for adults, we're not necessarily saying that a lot of guys, a lot of men in particular, don't necessarily need to increase their total amount of protein, but they've got it in the wrong places. They tend to eat a really big protein dinner And we would argue that they should distribute that more toward breakfast. And what about some of the other effects 
that protein has rather than just muscle building, but the effects on immunity and why we need it for vasodilation and just the, the things that people don't think about. We always talk about protein kind of like the same way we talk about vitamin C or vitamin D, like it's one thing. But protein is actually just a food that delivers amino acids. And the amino acids have literally every amino acid has at least two roles. One is what we sort of teach in freshman nutrition. It's a building block for a new protein, you know, where we need amino acids to build new proteins. But every amino acid has some other role. And for example, leucine is an amino acid I've worked with a lot. It's a unique trigger for mTOR that we talked about. Or arginine is the precursor for nitric oxide. Nitric oxide has a huge role in vasodilation and blood pressure. Glutamine is an amino acid that is a primary fuel for the immune system. It basically helps white blood cells be optimally active. Cysteine, methionine are important for glutathione production, which is a primary antioxidant, anti-cancer compound in the body. So what's really interesting about these is that at the minimum protein level, the RDA level, we supply enough protein to sort of meet that need as building blocks for new protein but we don't supply enough to meet all these other roles, nitric oxide or glutamine or glutathione or, or mTOR. And so that's the problem is we're ignoring the metabolic roles of amino acids when we focus on minimum intake. Speaking to the building blocks, I'm curious. I have a two-year-old who it is almost impossible to get him to eat anything other than bread and cereal. Uh-huh. And we really have to sneak it in. What would you say is the dietary protein requirements for a toddler, a baby, and then any ways to figure out how to get him to eat it? Yeah. At that age, it's around 1.5 to 2.0 grams per kg. So it's pretty high at that, at that point. The great thing about it is that children tend to eat quite a lot. And unlike adults where they need to get it in meals, Children grow because of hormones. And so they, in that case, lots of snacks works great. Unfortunately, as mom, you can't snack with them. <laughs> so the child will get, you know, eating his bread, eating his, you know, hopefully you can get some peanut butter with it, or you can get some other kinds of things where you'd have other sources, you know, yogurts or things along the way where you can get protein throughout the day. So with a child, it's really fine to snack and it's really fine to get it in in small amounts all the time. In adults, and by adults, I usually mean over 30, now we have to get much more meal conscious because hormones, which are a great friend for keeping us healthy up till our mid to late 20s, really aren't our friend after about 35. So let him snack, but not letting me snack with him. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. You, the idea that you need to taste everything he eats isn't really necessary. <laughs> I'm curious, you know, ketogenic diet is such a hot topic out there right now. I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. So like I said a little while ago, weight control is all about calories. And so whether it's alternate day fasting or or things like that, things that help you reduce your calories... Low-carbohydrate diets have been one of those ways to, to reduce calories, 
And so then it kind of raises the idea of how low do you need to go. The keto diet really came around as a low-carb diet. You know, well, how low can you go? Well, take them all out. We just won't eat any grains or a lot of the fruits, and we'll just take it down to, you know, 20 or 30 grams of carbs per day. There was a theories about ketone generation that somehow that was an efficient form of metabolism that you'd lose a lot of calories in the urine or things like that. I just don't buy that. I don't see that in the research literature to really support it. So keto diets will help you not be hungry. They're an easy concept to follow. You just can't eat any grains, no breads, no rice, no potatoes, none of it. You just can't eat it. So that's easy to think about. And you can pretty much eat what you want in terms of meats or dairies or fats and things like that. And the reality is, is when you're kind of have that available to you, the research shows that most people dramatically don't like the diet, so they reduce their intake. So we've done specific comparisons of low-carb diets where carbohydrates are reduced down to like 120 grams per day. And comparing that to the literature with keto diets at around 20 grams per day, and we pretty much get the same weight loss, same body composition, same blood lipid changes, and the people feel a lot better and have a lot more balanced diet. So I'm not against keto diets, but the reality is most people can't follow them for more than four, three, four, five weeks and they get sick of them. So I just don't, I never recommend it because I just don't see people following them very well. So we are super appreciative for you and thank you so much for your time. What are you working on next? Really right now, I've been working quite a lot on the sustainability topic that we touched on early. I have a paper that just got accepted in Nutrition Today, really kind of looking at the role of of cattle, both beef and dairy in a sustainable diet and sort of looking at the data about that. So that's kind of high on my agenda and also been working quite a bit with creating new infant formulas that are one of the problems we've had for years is trying to duplicate human breast milk. Is that for the morning coffee? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> so anyway, we've got some changes we've been able to make to uh, how we create formulas. So those are kind of the two areas that have kind of been top of my agenda lately. It's amazing. And where can people find you? Well, they can reach me. Uh, my university email is dlayman at illinois.edu. And my Twitter is at Don Lehman. Well, thank you again. And I'm sure that you will be on many more times. Yeah, so informative and so important. My pleasure to join you guys. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? We have a great contest for you guys to share the word about muscle medicine. We have a signed copy of Brenda Bouchard's High Performance Habits, Foods That Fit Your Macros ebook by Holly Baxter, Kathy Dooley's Immaculate Dissection DVDs, five of my favorite health and wellness books, a 60-minute higher dose, which is an infrared sauna place, a session for two people, a Mobot mobility water bottle so you can foam roll and hydrate wherever you are, and a roll of rock tape and rock floss 
to get your mobility and stability in all the right places. How do you get these prizes? Go to Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Hit subscribe at the top. Give us a five-star review if you love what we're doing. And then head over to bit.ly slash musclemed. B-I-T dot L-Y slash musclemed. Send us your name, your email, hit submit, and then you're entered. Share muscle medicine with your friends to increase your chances of winning. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart.